Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter chapter number 1. Thank you, Brother Dwayne. I haven't heard that song in lots of years. I really appreciate you bringing that to my memory again. Refresh me of those wonderful lyrics. And then take out your worship guide as that you should have received on your way in. And um, we'll follow along today in the notes. <clears throat> Today's message is not necessarily a salvation message but if you do not know christ if you do not have a personal relationship with christ the reason we exist as a church at its core is to share the message of the gospel um and what is the gospel the well before there's good news and and the gospel literally means good news there's also some bad news and the bad news is what isaiah saw he saw his sin he saw that he was not ready to stand before a holy god because he was a sinner And so that's the bad news. The bad news is that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that if we die in our sin, we'll spend eternity separated from God. Not because he wanted that, but because God's not going to violate our free will. And so that's that's the bad news. The bad news is we're broken. We're lost. We're hiding in the bushes just like Adam did, fearful. But if you study the Bible, you'll find out over and over that the message of the gospel begins with fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. So what's the good tidings? (laughs) The good tidings is God has made a way where there seemed to be no way. And Jesus is the only way. He's our only hope. So if you don't know Christ, will you trust him today? Today I'm going to share a message why we know this is all true. Why we know the gospel, why we know that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. I'm going to share with you today a lot of evidence as to why this book, the most amazing book in all the world, the book that has stood the test of time for centuries, why this book is true. If you missed last week's sermon, you'll probably want to go back and catch that on the podcast. If you're watching by way of live stream, go on our Facebook page and you can see last week's message. This is kind of a two-part message. And so just to do a quick review, but before we do the quick review, I want you to look at your introduction there in your um, handout and see the intro to today's message. Voltaire was a famous French philosopher from the late 16, early 1700s. He uh, lived about 83 years on this rock, and he thought of himself as a brilliant atheist, very enlightened, he thought. He wrote a number of pamphlets deriding, attacking the Bible. He once made a very bold statement, and I have it here on the screen. He said, 100 years from now, from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Today, most folks have forgotten what Voltaire said, but they have not forgotten the Bible. In fact, after Voltaire died for the next 100 years, the French Bible Society produced Bibles out of his home. God seems to have a sense of humor. And so, um, today, the Bible lives on, and we continue our study today on why the Bible is true, why we can trust it as an accurate record of what really happened in first century Palestine, and why we know it gives to us the truth about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Today, we're going to examine five pieces of evidence on why we know that the New Testament gives to us a truthful record of events in the first century and why we know that Jesus Christ existed and why we know that these writers who wrote these things down believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. 
And so before we look at that, let's do a quick review. Last week, we looked at manuscript evidence for at least the accuracy of the copies of the original documents from the Bible um, in which they were written there in the first century. And we gave to you several evidences of that. And of course, we asked this question, the first question we covered last week, do we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents? And before I get too far into the message, I, I, I said last week that Chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, is great material to go study even deeper. I am hitting a lot of the summary points from those three chapters, and you can get that book on the table out in our lobby if you'd like a copy of that. And so if anything I share today says, ooh, I need to go read more on that, go read those chapters, 9, 10, and 11 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And so last week we looked at this question of, okay, do we know that we have an accurate copy of something from 2,000 years ago, and how did those copies get copied down, and why do we know that? And we gave four pieces of evidence, earlier manuscripts, more manuscripts, more accurately copied manuscripts, and more abundantly supported manuscripts, all right? And go back and listen to the message, as I said, from last week, and you can get more detail there. This is just a quick overview and review. And we said the New Testament, by far, of any ancient source of literature from that time period, by far, has more manuscript evidence. I mean, you can see that orange line. Over 5,700 manuscripts compared to the second most, uh, 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 most, which would be Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And what's amazing is you'll have skeptics question the accuracy of the Bible when you have all this manuscript evidence, but they won't question the accuracy of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey when it has a tenth of the manuscript evidence that the Bible does. And so we compared this last week. We looked at both earlier and more manuscript evidence, and we even showed how there are portions of Mark and the Gospel of John that literally they can place within a decade of the actual events themselves. Fascinating, the, the textual research that's being done. And then we talked about how we know what the original said with all of these copies and how you could take all these copies, and yeah, one copy might have a word misspelled or a letter left out, but another copy has the word fully, and so you can compare and contrast. This is a science called textual criticism, and so we talked about uh, how you can know what the original said through all of these copies. It really is amazing that God preserved his word better through more copies than just having one copy. And we shared why that was so important, because if there was just one copy, someone could have corrupted it. Someone could have tried to twist it and corrupt it and pervert it. And of course, Satan's always tried to do that with God's word. Yea, hath God said. And we even shared this wonderful number, 36,289. How many of you remember why this number is significant? Because even if we had zero manuscripts from the first century, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament from just the preaching of the early church pastors from the first through third century. That amazes me, and that what a challenge that our church would be based and anchored on the Word of God and always be there. Amen? Amen. And so this is our uh, passion, is that we are studying why the Bible's true, why we can trust it, because we're a word-driven ministry. And so that's the question we looked at last week. Do we have an accurate copy of the original New Testament documents? This week, we're looking at this question. And that is, and that's the first blank in your handout, do the original New Testament documents tell us the truth? So we know that we've got accurate copies. But the question is, do these copies tell us the truth? So does the New Testament record for us a truthful record? We know we've got accurate copies from what was written down in the first century. 
And if you do the study in that, you'll be able to see that clearly. But now we ask the question of, does it tell us the truth? Because, let's, let's face it, you can have an accurate copy of a lie. The Quran would be an example of a book that from about the 6th or 7th century, it's been accurately copied, but does the Quran give us the truth about ultimate reality and about who God is? Of course not. Um, the Book of Mormon would be another example of that. You can have an accurate copy of error, but does the, God, does the Bible give to us an accurate reporting of truth? That's the question. And the reason that's so important is because the very first thing we looked at in this whole series was what? What is truth? And so ultimately, this ties all the way back to the first or second message of our series, asking, okay, what is true? Can we know it? How do we know it? Can we believe it? Can we stake our eternal destiny upon it? And so let's look at this verse, 2 Peter 1.16. Here's what the Bible says. For we have not followed, and I love how Peter puts it, cunningly devised fables. What's, ba what's Peter basically saying? This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't something we tell ourselves at night to keep the boogeyman away. This isn't something that makes us feel all peaceful and rosy when we're about to die. He says, this is not cunningly devised fables. In fact, I think you can even argue that he's basically saying, I wouldn't put my neck on the line, literally, for a fairy tale. He says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But catch this, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's Peter saying? He's saying, we saw this. We saw this with our own eyes, and we cannot do anything but tell you what we have seen and heard. These are not stories. These are not fairy tales. How one atheist put it, he said, Christians tell themselves this story tale. It's a, it's a story tale that, it's a, it's a fairy tale that Christians tell themselves because they're afraid of the dark. I love how C.S. Lewis responded. C.S. Lewis says, atheism is the fairy tale that atheists tell themselves because they're afraid of the light. So it's all a matter in how you look at it. And what's the most credible fairy tale? Okay, but Peter's saying this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of God's majesty. So here's the five evidences that we want to give to you today. There's more in chapter 11 specifically of the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, that I would encourage you to look at. But today we're going to look at five evidences, and you go ahead and fill out all of your blanks. So go ahead and do that, and then we're going to give you some notes to take underneath that if you'd like to. But here's the five pieces of evidence for why we know beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond all doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt, why the Bible gives to us the truth. All right? Five evidences. So expected, early, eyewitness, embarrassing, and excruciating testimony. And it's these five proofs that give to us, whoa, we know beyond a reasonable doubt that this book is telling us the truth. Father, speak to our hearts today. Help us to see these evidences. If there's anyone in here who's a skeptic, who's really had a problem believing the Bible, I pray that today you would help them to see these powerful evidences, clues, fingerprints of your existence, that they would see that what these documents are telling us in, in the New Testament are true. And Father, thank you that it's not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, that are all together true and wonderful, and they reveal to us who you are, and what you've done so that we could be with you for all of eternity. Bless this message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And so expected testimony is the first proof we're going to look at, all right? Expected testimony. What do we mean when we say that the New Testament gives to us expected testimony? Well, I want to read to you a passage of Scripture, and I love this illustration, and it really does work. I'm going to read to you a passage of Scripture, and then I want you to tell me where it's from and who it's about, all right? Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God." And, and, and we esteemed him uh, not. But he was wounded, verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Question. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to read all that for sake of time. Where's that from? Somebody want to say it out loud? Isaiah. All right. And who's that about? Jesus Christ. In fact, many, many Jews have come to know Christ through that passage that you just read. Why? Why is that passage significant? Because Isaiah was written at least 700 years before Christ. And so with with this point of expected testimony, what are we saying? That we should expect testimony about a Messiah and a Savior, because through science and reason, we know that God exists and created us for a purpose. The Old Testament teaches the same. The Old Testament teaches that everything that God says is true. In the beginning, God created. We've proven that Genesis 1-1 is true. And so the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah, the Savior of the human race, would come and exist. And so what you do is you start to piece together all of these pieces of prophetic history in the Old Testament that point to expected testimony in the New Testament that a Savior would appear, a Messiah would appear, and he would fulfill these prophecies. There's over 300 prophecies, but I've listed seven or eight prophecies right here that give to you you the um, pointing to who fulfilled these. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, but these, by far, pinpoint the bullseye precisely upon Jesus. So Jesus would have to be a human being. He would be born of the seed of a woman, which speaks to the virgin birth or the virgin conception. He was born just like everybody else, but the virgin conception. So the human race, So he would have to be of the line of Adam, but yet not be like Adam. What a conundrum. How would that be solved? We see down through the Old Testament this prophecy pointing to someone who would be born in a miraculous way, who would be conceived in a miraculous way. Then he would have to be of the line of David. He would have to be of the line of David. And you can see that prophesied in Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 33, verse 15. He would have to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. He would be both God and man, Isaiah 9, 6. He would visit the temple. Now, this is fascinating because... What happened to the temple in in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed. So the Messiah would have to come before the temple was destroyed. And so he would visit the temple according to Malachi 3 verse 1. He would die somewhere between 30 and 33 AD. Daniel 9, 24. There's a fascinating 
How many math whizzes do we have in here? There's a fascinating mathematical formula in the book of Daniel, chapters 9, verses 24 through 27, that speak to the fact that Jesus Christ died, the Messiah was cut off to the day, 483 years later from that prophecy. Fascinating. And so he had to die somewhere between 30 and 33 AD, depending on chronological records which we're not going to get into chronology. If you study chronology, you know that we're not even sure what day it is today. Anyway, uh, calendars have changed and all kinds of stuff. But anyway, right there in a three-year window, Jesus Christ had to die. And then this individual would rise from the dead. Verse 11, verse 11 of Isaiah 53 tells us that. Who other person in the human race, in human history, has ever been able to fulfill all of just those seven or eight prophecies, let alone over 300. So the point is, there is expected testimony that we see. Who else fits this description except for Jesus Christ? Now, of course, the skeptics immediately say, but wait a second, Isaiah wasn't an early document. Um, In in fact, the most recent quote-unquote copy that we have of Isaiah was from about 1000 AD. So the Jewish Christians just begged that into the text and made it say certain things. In Isaiah 53, they edited it. And that was a great argument up until 1967 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and they found a 24-foot-long perfect copy of Isaiah that was dated a thousand years earlier than the most recent copy they thought they had. And right there was Isaiah 53 proven archaeological discovery that this was written at least 700 years before the time of Christ. And so the scribes, they were very meticulous in how they copied. And so we see, number one, this evidence that the New Testament now is going to really show how this Messiah fulfills all the things that were written in the Old Testament. And over and over you see in the Gospels these these phrases such as, and the scriptures were fulfilled, that all prophecy might be fulfilled. You see the writers saying that over and over. Why? Because they're connecting it back to these Old Testament prophecies. So number one, we have expected testimony. Number two, we have early testimony. Why do we know that the Bible is true? Well, it gives to us expected testimony of what we would expect from the Old Testament, pointing us to this Messiah, this Savior of the human race. But number two, we have early testimony. And we talked a little bit about this last week, and we just even alluded to it right now with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Skeptics try to claim that the New Testament documents were all written very late, well after 70 A.D., when legend would have gotten into the original events. In fact, a person that I mentioned last week, Bart Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, that's his main thesis. He says that these documents, these first century documents, um, were really not originally first century. They were written well after, two to three hundred years after, where legend got into the stories, and we really don't even know what's true. That's basically Ehrman's thesis in his book. And so they claim that, these, uh, that, that, that the copies are now much later and we can't even get back to the original event. And so they claim that mythology got injected into the stories. But let's see if they are correct. Let's see if these documents are late and not before 70 AD. I'm going to put up here a, a timeline, and I don't know if you can see all that. Sometimes it doesn't translate so well to these screens from my computer screen. But early testimony, let's look at this timeline. There are two major events that virtually all scholars agree 
happened in history. Whether you're Christian or non-Christian, there's two events that you agree happened in history. Number one, the cross, the death of Jesus, sometime in the early 30s AD, and that is affirmed by the Jewish historian Josephus, who was the most prominent first century historian for the Jewish people. And then number two, the, the, the other event on the other end of the timeline, on the right end of the timeline, is the temple's destruction in 70 AD. There is zero dispute about this. Titus, the Roman general, came in and wiped out the entire city of Jerusalem. He obliterated the temple. In fact, it, it is the most dramatic event in the history of the Jewish people was the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So significant that the nation did not become a nation as Israel again until 1948, almost 1900 years later. That's why 1948 is so significant in so many ways that, um, man, you, you just get this sense that God is at work in human history. And he is about fulfilling every promise he's ever made to the Jewish people. And so the, 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 the city of Jerusalem was left in ruins. I mean, it was, you know, crusades happened throughout the centuries. Of course, it was ruled by the Muslims for a long time. And thus, why you have all the um, fighting going on and over there today. But the temple, even to this day, has still not been rebuilt. And so you've got these two events, the cross and the temple, that historians totally know happened, all right? So keep that in your mind. Now, we know that Paul was executed sometime in the mid to late 60s. He gave his life for his faith. We know that James, as you can see right there next to Paul, as we're working backwards now in the timeline, he was, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He was killed by the Sanhedrin in 62 A.D., Josephus, the Jewish first century historian, tells us this. He affirms that James was killed in this time. Josephus lived from 37 AD to about 100 AD. And as I mentioned, Josephus was the prominent historian of the Jewish people. He actually surrendered during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD and um, kind of gave, gave in to the Romans. And because of that, he became liked by the Roman emperor and became the prominent historian of that time. Josephus said that the war of 66 to 70 AD with Rome was the greatest war of all time. Thousands of villages were burned. Over one million people had been killed or taken into exile. And of course, he affirms that the temple was obliterated. Which is fascinating because who had prophesied that the temple would be destroyed? Who? If you know your Bible, Jesus had prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. We know that James was not a believer before the resurrection. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he wasn't a believer. How do we know this? John 7, verse 5. Turn there for a moment. John 7, verse 5. John 7, verse 5 says this. <clears throat> for neither did his brethren believe in him. John 7, verse 5. So James was skeptical. James was not a believer in Jesus before the resurrection. We'll share a little bit more about that later in the message on why he became a believer. And then we see here the book of Acts. So you see Paul, James, and then you see the word Acts there. The book of Acts was written by 62 AD and no later. How do we know this? Well, who is Acts about? Acts is about two major characters in the book. Peter in Acts chapters 1 through 10 and Paul, Acts chapters 11 through 28. How does the book of Acts end? It ends with Paul being under house arrest awaiting trial in Rome. Now, Luke records a lot of early believers giving their lives for the faith in the book of Acts. We note the stoning of Stephen is mentioned. The stoning of the other James is mentioned in the book of Acts. 
who is the brother of John, Acts 12. Luke doesn't state that the two main characters that he's writing about, Peter and Paul, gave their lives. So what can we conclude? That they are still alive, most likely, when the end of the book is concluded. Now, some would say that this is an argument from silence, but it is still a strong argument when you consider the character of the writer, Luke. This is why I named my youngest son Luke, because Luke convinced me that what you're reading is absolute, honest truth. That's why I love the name Luke, and that's why my youngest son is named Luke, because it was in reading Luke that I was convinced. Because Luke is a meticulous, consummate historian. He gave great detail in his writing of both the book of Acts and his gospel account, the book of Luke, when he, in, when he interviewed many eyewitnesses. Now, when you take all this into account, and then you also take into this argument from science, the temple is never mentioned as being destroyed in any of the New Testament documents, which if the temple had been destroyed... That would have been an amazing affirmation of the prophetic power of Jesus. And certainly his disciples, who all these secular historians claim they had a bias, they would have written about it. So we know that these New Testament documents had to be written before 70 AD. Because if the temple had been destroyed, they would have been like, see, Jesus was right. And they would have affirmed that in these documents. And so Luke is very detailed in his writing. As we keep going, we would see uh, 1 Corinthians there on the timeline, around 55 AD. We studied that book last year. Um, Almost all historians would would, would say that 1 Corinthians was written by 55 AD. 1 Corinthians is important because it gives to us the best evidence for the resurrection after the Gospels do. What do I mean? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be looking at this passage again in a few weeks in preparation for Resurrection Sunday. But 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, gives to us something fascinating. It says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James. Remember James earlier that I mentioned? James, the half-brother of Jesus, who John 7, verse 5 says, his brethren did not believe on him? I mean, think about it. How many of you have ever had your brother and sister say, bow down and worship me, I am God? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Joey's raising his hand. Yeah, some of our sisters kind of get that Messiah complex, you know. They think that they're all that, they're bossy, and they think that they're deity and that we should bow down and worship them. What would it take to convince you that your sibling... Is God. I don't know, maybe being crucified and three days later rising from the dead. James is powerful proof that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead when he didn't believe beforehand. And so he says he was seen of James. The last of all, he was seen of me. Who's who's me here? Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians, also as one born out of due time. Now, what is this? Uh, scholars, Gary Habermas, a professor at Liberty University, has, has identified uh, around 40 different what they call apostles' creeds that were a part of the first century. 
that were actually recited and memorized for about two to three decades before it became standard that these things were written down. And this is one of the earliest creeds. In fact, most even liberal scholars say that this creed goes back to within three to eight years of the event itself. This creed. That word, that, gives you the key. There's this rhyme to this creed, and there's over 40 in the New Testament that Gary Habermas and other scholars have identified. Why is that important? Because if we know 1 Corinthians was written by 55 AD, and, and he's quoting a creed, folks, that gets you back to literally the week after, the day after, the year after the resurrection happened. These are not late documents written two to three hundred years after the event when mythology and historical revisionism could have been entered into the stories. These things are true. We can bank our eternal destiny on believing these things. And so James, uh, he was the brother of Jesus, and, he, and, and, and as I mentioned, he wasn't a believer at first. But what changed? What convinced James to go to the city of Jerusalem where all these things supposedly— by, by the way, you're not going to be able to plant a church in the city of Jerusalem and claim that Jesus rose from the dead unless it really happened. And of course, we know that James would later give his life for the faith. We know that what convinced him that his sibling was God— was that Jesus rose from the dead. James saw this with his very eyes. Then we see uh, Luke. Luke was um, written prior to Acts, obviously. Then Mark was written prior to Luke. Paul would have had to have written all of his writings before he died, obviously. And so uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, all these were written um, before Paul's death. The point is, is all the New Testament books... Almost all, if not all, were written before 70 AD. And that makes sense, wouldn't it? I mean, if you were to pick up a, um, a book up in New York City, we're going to be traveling to New York City this, this fall on a, on a little family vacation. And if we were to pick up a book on the history of lower Manhattan, and I was to read that entire book about the history of Manhattan, but I read nothing about September 11th, 2001, what could I conclude about that book? Most likely, it was written before what date? September 11th, 2001. And so, as you put all this together, you see that these documents, the evidence, it's the weight of the evidence. There's not just one piece, but the, but, but the dates are clearly still within the age of the eyewitnesses being alive. These documents that you hold in your lap this morning, most, if not all, were written within the age of the eyewitnesses still being alive, which is fascinating, which leads us to eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3 for a moment. Luke chapter number 3. So we have expected testimony. We have early testimony. What's another proof that we know that what these documents are telling us is the truth? We have eyewitness testimony. Look at Luke chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. The Bible says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, as you read that, if Luke was making up a story, wouldn't it sound better, once upon a time there was a man named Jesus? You know what Luke did in these two verses? He gave to us eight, write it down, eight historical markers 
that you could go and pinpoint the exact date of when this was, A.D. 29. Does it sound like Luke's making up a story? Or does it sound like what Luke is recording are facts of what happened in history and also facts of what Jesus did in the miracles, the signs, and wonders that he performed because he is God? See, what happens is, is skeptics read, read the gospel and say, oh, well, that can't be true because there's miracle involved. But yet, this does not smack at all of a once-upon-a-time story. All eight people are known from history. In fact, Pontius Pilate, here in a second, you're going to see actual archaeological proof that Pontius Pilate was the prefect, was the governor of Judea at that time. And skeptics for years said, there's no Pontius Pilate. We can't find any evidence that he, this is made up, until they dug up the ground and found a stone with Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea, in the ground. Every time a shovel goes in the ground in the Middle East, a liberal is converted. Because archaeology proves the Bible over and over and over. Numerous confirmed eyewitness details. We'll get back to the archaeology in a second. Acts has 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details. You want to, I'm going to tell you the clincher for me. The clincher for me that I knew that these documents were true, and you're going to be like, what? The depth of the water off the coast of Malta. That did it for me. Luke is so meticulous in his details that he literally got, in, in the story of them being shipwrecked, he literally got the depth of the water off the coast of Malta correct. And when I studied that, I literally got glory bumps. I'm like, wow, this is true. You don't go to that kind of detail if this didn't happen. Luke is a forensic historical writer. Luke includes several other uh, details in his gospel, as we just read in Luke chapter number 3. John has 59 historically confirmed or historically probable eyewitness details. The New Testament documents, the New Testament documents cite more than 30 people confirmed by secular or archaeological sources. And here's the list. You can't even see that, probably. Oh, no, you can see that pretty good. There's all the people of the first century that have been confirmed by archaeological historical evidence. It's overwhelming. Do you realize that Jesus himself is confirmed by at least 10 ancient non-Christian historians within 150 years of his life? He is mentioned by at least 40 ancient sources if you include Christian sources in your data. Jesus is mentioned by more historians than the Roman emperor at that time. And yet... Secular historians, atheists, don't question whether the Roman emperor existed. But you have people like Bill Maher in his movie, Religious, questioning whether even Jesus was a person of history. That tells me someone hasn't done their homework. The burden of proof, the burden of proof is on them. As I mentioned to you, uh, here's a stone, a stone that was literally dug up in 1961 confirming that Pontius Pilate was the governor, the prefect of Judea at that time, 26 to 37 A.D. You remember that other name? Uh, Luke mentioned eight names in that Luke chapter 3 passage. You're still there. If you look at the end of that passage, it says Annas and Caiaphas. Guess what they found in 1990? The bone box for Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest of Jerusalem, from 18 to 36 A.D. 
What the Jews would do is after about a year of a body being buried, they would dig up the bones and put those bones in a bone box because a certain sect of the Jews believed in the resurrection. And so they would put those bones in a bone box to better preserve them. So there you go. Once again, proof that the Bible is telling us the truth. Crucifixion was also questioned by the skeptics for many years, you know, uh, how could crucifixion have been something that was going on in Jerusalem at that time? That, that, that seemed to be an event in a detail until they found an actual foot bone with a nail still through it in Jerusalem. I like how one scholar put it, Jeffrey Scheller, in his article, Is the Bible True? from U.S. News and World Report, written in 1999. He said, in extraordinary ways, modern, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testaments, corroborating key portions of the stories of Israel's patriarchs, the Exodus. By the way, since 1999, there has been phenomenal archaeological research and chronological research done, specifically by a man by the name of Tim Mahoney. If you've not seen his two movies on the Exodus, you're missing out. They're scholarly, but listen... I'm thankful for men who are scholars who are doing this work, proving over and over that the Bible is giving to us an accurate record of what happened. Another uh, scholar said, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? Eyewitness testimony. Independent eyewitness testimony. Eyewitnesses agree on major events but differ on minor details. When you read the stories of the Gospels, you get differing details. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we were to all leave out of here today going to lunch and we were to see an accident on the Beltline, we're all going to get the big picture story right. There was an accident on the Beltline. But you might notice a, a, a little bit of a different detail than another. What I love about the Bible is you never see contradictory information. You see complementary information. Some skeptics say, well, there's a problem with the resurrections accounts. You know, one gospel writer says there was one angel there, and another gospel writer says there were two angels there. Well, one gospel writer only mentioned one, but he never said there was only one. See, you got to... So when you hear these arguments, they sound great at first. Oh, the Bible's full of... Contra no, no, they're not full of contradictions. They're full of complementary information. This is the nature of New Testament documents. New, New Testament writers didn't sit down and try to collude... In fact, if a judge has two witnesses who say the exact same story verbatim, what does that judge conclude? They figured out their story beforehand and memorized it. So there's 27 different books, eight or nine different authors, five or six independent sources on the resurrection. Eyewitness details. Nineteen people were named by Paul as eyewitnesses in that 1 Corinthians 15 creed. And more than 500 others are cited now, here's what's fascinating. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15 for just a moment. You've got to see this. This, to me, if the, depth of the, off, if the depth of the water off the coast of Malta doesn't do it, this right here should be absolute rock-solid proof that what we're reading is actual, true historical details. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 for just a moment. This is fascinating. Paul mentions a whole list of eyewitnesses. Question, who does Paul leave out? 
He mentions the apostles. He mentions James. He mentions himself. He mentions 500 But who's he not mentioned by name or even by a general category? The women. And the women were the only ones who were said to have seen things at the tomb first in all the gospel accounts. Why is that? Because in the first century, a woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law. And if these guys were making up the resurrection, you would have never said that women were the first to be witnesses to it. And here's what's interesting. Paul, later on in his creed, I guess he includes the women in the 500, but he doesn't mention them specifically, which tells me that maybe Paul was a little bit of a chauvinist. Maybe Paul didn't want to, you know, maybe, maybe that's just how the creed got put together. And they knew that the women were important, but not that important. But they didn't know that years later, actually the differences between 1 Corinthians and the Gospels would be some of the most powerful proof that, yes, there was a bias against women in the first century. And if these writers wanted to concoct a resurrection story, they would have never put women at the tomb first. Powerful evidence that this indeed happened, which brings us to this embarrassing testimony issue. Again, if you're writing, if you're Peter, or if you're Matthew, or if you're Mark, and, 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 or John, and you're writing about, about the, the resurrection and the crucifixion, all those details, how would you cast yourself? You would cast yourself as one of the heroes. You wouldn't present yourself as a coward. You wouldn't present yourself as not being at the tomb first. You wouldn't say that the women were first. And Paul kind of gives us proof of the bias against women in the first century. Poor ladies. I'm sorry for you. I feel bad for you. If there is something embarrassing, every historian will tell you that if there is something embarrassing to the author or authors in the text, it's probably true. Why? Because they would not make up a story that makes them look bad. In fact, even when writing a true story, many times you leave out the embarrassing details so that you don't look bad. This is just how it, how it works. We, we tend to leave out the not-so-convenient, embarrassing details about it, even if it's true. But certainly if you're making up a story, which all these skeptics claim that it is, you're not going to have embarrassing details in there. Look at all the embarrassing details. You might want to just snap a photo of this or, or jot it down real quick. But they are dim-witted. They fail to understand what Jesus is saying over and over. The disciples present themselves as dense. They're uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus twice in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, if you're writing a story about yourself, you're going to say, I stayed up all night praying with the Messiah. I'm a prayer warrior. They make no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. None of them. They all fled from Jesus except for John. They are rebuked. Peter is called Satan by Jesus. And Mark, most historians say Mark... Um, was the amanuensis for Peter, the uh, court writer, the uh, person who wrote down Peter's account. Mark, all, all, most historians believe that Mark was the writer for Peter and gave Peter's eyewitness account. So Peter is called Satan by Jesus. Why would Peter include that statement in the book of Mark? Paul rebukes Peter for being wrong about a... Th- or, excuse me, sorry, I skipped to the next one. They make no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. They are rebuked. Paul rebukes Peter for being wrong about a theological issue in Galatians 2, verse 11. Peter was struggling still with with not associating with the Gentiles, legalistic tendencies, trying to separate from the Gentiles. Paul rebukes him to his face. 
They present themselves as cowards. Peter denies Christ three times. The disciples all run away. The women are the brave ones. There you go, women. You're the brave ones. Again, Paul shows, Paul shows in his creed that women didn't get included in the, in the stories that much. That's amazing to me. Amazing evidence that what we're reading are eyewitness, eyewitness accounts. They're doubters. Despite being taught several times that Jesus would rise from the dead, they still doubted. The disciples are doubtful when they hear of his resurrection. They think that the women are just babbling. They're crazy. Some are even doubtful after they see him risen. Matthew 28, 17. Read that verse sometime. We don't have time to read it now, but read that verse, and you're going to find out, even after his resurrection, just before he gave the Great Commission, it says, and some still doubted. What? Like, are we really seeing with our very eyes Jesus? Which tells me that seeing something with your very eyes still doesn't solve the belief question. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. What did Jesus say? Even if one rise from the dead, they will not believe if they do not hear Moses and the prophets. So embarrassing testimony. Listen, they gave embarrassing testimony about Jesus. When you read the Gospels, it's fascinating. I mean... There's reports of him being out of his mind by his own family who try to come and seize him when he's first starting his earthly ministry. You know, his brothers and sisters try to come and take him home. We're like, all right, Jesus. Kind of sound a little crazy. Again, if you're trying to make up a story about this nice, neat, and tidy Christianity and you want Jesus to look perfect, you're not going to put that detail in there. He's deserted by many of his followers in John 6, verse 66. Not believed by his own brothers. We've already mentioned that one. Thought to be a deceiver, John 7, verse 12, by the Pharisees. Turns off Jewish believers to the point that they want to stone him. He's called a madman, John 10, 20. Called a drunkard, Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. Called demon-possessed, Mark 3, 22. Has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute. We studied this passage on Wednesday night in our youth group. This woman of questionable reputation. He's crucified despite the fact that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And of course, all the New Testament writers were Jewish to start with. And they knew the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone that is hung on a tree. So why would they make up a story about Jesus being hung on a tree if under the Jewish law it was a curse for you to be hung on a tree? Well, they knew that was fulfilling scripture. That Jesus ultimately was the curse for us. He became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. And so we see expected testimony, early testimony, eyewitness, embarrassing testimony. Great evidence that the New Testament is telling us the truth. And then finally, excruciating testimony. I want you to look very closely at the next two verses I'm about to share with you. Because it really does tie together everything we've been talking about this morning. What do I mean when I say excruciating testimony? These men had no reason to make this up and then go through the torture and suffering and persecution that they went through if it was not true. Acts 4.20, the response of the disciples was, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What are they saying? We've seen it, we've heard it, and if we perish, we perish. But we're going to speak the truth. Because this is what happened. 1 John 3, verses 1, through 3, 1 and 3, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life, speaking of Jesus, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know what John was doing in this epistle? He was making the case to the unbelievers that, guys, I'm writing this to you because God wants this relationship with you, and we have seen this. Will you believe it? Eyewitness testimony excruciating testimony. When you look at this chart, this is a fascinating chart. Look at the apostles who wrote the New Testament. Look at their beliefs and practices before and after the resurrection. Before these men believed in animal sacrifice, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. Before, they believed that the law of Moses was binding and that if you did not follow the law of Moses to the T, you would perish. After, Christ's life is the source of their righteousness, not the law. Strict monotheism before the resurrection. Afterwards, you see the concept of the Trinity coming out in all the New Testament epistles. For instance, Paul, in writing the letter to the Thessalonians, he said, I pray, God, your whole body, soul, and spirit, and he mentioned the Trinity as well in his writings. The Sabbath. The Sabbath was a very strict adherence from Friday evening at 6 to Saturday evening at 6. Afterwards, Sunday worship moving to worship on the Lord's Day. Before, the Jews thought that the Messiah would be a conquering Messiah. They missed Isaiah 53. They missed the fact that he would first come as a suffering servant, then as a ruling and reigning king in his second advent, in his return. And so they thought he would be a conquering Messiah. He would rid them of the slavery of Rome. They failed to see that he would be a... But, but then afterwards, they see that he was a sacrificial Messiah. Before, they thought circumcision. Afterwards, baptism and communion. What's the point of these things? It's, it's, it's to show you that why would they have changed these core beliefs of Judaism if something did not occur that was what many scholars would call an impact event? Psych, actually, psychologists call this an impact event. What do we mean by an impact event? It's when something in your life occurs so much so that it impacts you to such a degree that you are forever changed afterward. If you're in here and you've had a heart attack or a stroke, probably that was a major impact event. Things changed after that heart attack or stroke, right? You started eating better, you stopped smoking, stopped drinking, started exercising. That's an impact event. Let me illustrate the impact event this way. November 22nd, 1963. Where were you? Where were you? November 22nd, 1963. Where were you? Raise your hand. Where? Russ? Where were you? I was in fifth grade. Sitting at my desk. Yeah. Sarah? Yeah, math class. Anybody over here? Some were like, I wasn't alive in 1963. So see, you don't know. November 22nd, 1963, to our youth, they're like, what's that? Unless they're historian buffs, they don't know. But if you were alive, you know that. That was the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I'll never forget where I was in 1986 when President Ronald Reagan came on the screen. We saw the images. I'll never forget where I was on September the 11th, a Tuesday morning, beautiful clear sky, even down in Pensacola, Florida. And my friend Wes Helfenbein walks through the commons and he says, do you hear what happened to the World Trade Center towers? 
I'll never forget exactly where I was. I'll never forget what we studied in our Bible class just before I heard that news and how it was so prescient, what we had studied, and then to hear that, referring to the Twin Towers falling and all those people losing their lives. What are these events? They're impact events. Why do we remember them? Because they made an impact. Now, if I said September 11th, 2002, you don't know where you were. Maybe you got a general idea. November 22nd, 1965, But that date sticks in your mind. And when an impact event happens, you also remember all the events around it. And you're able to give accurate eyewitness detail to it. That's why we believe these documents. That's why we can't study these documents enough. Because we know they're true. And they give to us the most important answers of life. So we see this excruciating testimony. These men were forever changed. So I ask you the question, what did these New Testament writers have to gain by making up this story? Nothing. They had everything to lose. They were going to lose their businesses. They were going to lose their family. Jesus even prophesied. He said, if you follow me, you're going to lose your family. And to the Middle Eastern culture of that day, it was like your death when you left the Jewish faith. And so they were going to lose their family. They would lose their very lives. Folks, these are not cunningly devised fables. This is the truth. They had every motive. Think about it. They had every motive to say that the resurrection didn't happen. Every motive, humanly speaking. Now, some will say, well, but they were just deceived and they... And they were telling a story to kind of embellish it to get power. Listen, why would they die for a known lie? Listen, I know there's other religions out there that are crazy, and they'll go kill themselves to try to get 70 women in eternity, you know, Islam. And and, and, and so they'll kill themselves for what they think is the truth. We know it's a lie. But no one is going to die for what they know is a lie. It makes no sense. All we can conclude is that this excruciating, eyewitness, embarrassing, early, expected testimony gives to us the truth. So what can we conclude about the New Testament? That it is historically reliable. It is fact and not fiction. If it says Jesus said it, then Jesus really said it. If it says that Jesus did it, then Jesus really did it. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, that your faith is rooted in his excellent word. What a firm foundation that we have. And as I challenge you at the end of last week's message, I challenge you again today. If this book is true, then what kind of relationship should we have with it? Because it's through this book that we know the Father, that we know the Son, that we know the Spirit, and that we grow in our relationship with Him, that from Genesis to Revelation, God is revealing the wonderful singular story of His redemption and rescue of mankind, His great creation that He loves, and that Jesus Christ would come to this earth. He would be the one who would descend from heaven to touch our lives, to take away our sin, to impute us with his righteousness through his death, burial, and resurrection. Faith cometh by hearing, 
and hearing by the word of God. John said at the end of his gospel, these things, these eyewitness reports are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. Question, do you have life in his name today? If you were to die today, do you know that you would have eternal life in him? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God.